So I get a, a text from a really good friend of mine in the program. And, uh, and she says to me, how you doing? And I said, uh, feeling a little fraudulent. And she writes back, fraudulent? And that was all I needed. And I gave her a very compelling argument as to why I'm a fraud. I got no wife. I got no job. I write books that nobody reads. She gets my text and writes me back 15 seconds later. What does she write? I get it. Not, no, no, no. Right. You're not a fraud. You're wonderful. You're this. You're that. Look at how you're handling this. You're brilliant. You're the, no, just, I get it. So Bill S. has been sober since November 19th, 1995. My name is Mike S., and this is another episode of Keep Coming Back, Real Stories of Sobriety and Recovery. Now, I've talked before about all the different methods that I use to try and get sober before I actually walked into an AA meeting. You know, I talked about the hypnotist that had the office above Grand Central who told me that anytime I would see the color red for the rest of my life, that I would lose any desire to drink and drug. And I talked about the $300 an hour breathing instructor who told me that I would breathe through my cravings. Or the acupuncturist who thought that if the needles were put just in the right spot of my ear, that that would do the trick. Or even the addiction therapist that wasn't an addict himself. You know, these didn't work for many reasons. The biggest reason being, one, that I was still sort of doing it on my own. But also, as Bill points out in that clip, there wasn't anyone there that had actually gone through it that could say, I get it. Like, I know how you feel. You know, I once heard this interview with uh, Ellen DeGeneres. And she, I think it was on one of those Oprah masterclasses, and she was talking about her past relationships before she met her wife. And she said the phrase, it's the, it's the age old line, it's wonderful to be loved, but profound to be understood. And that's kind of at the core of AA, I think, because I'm in a room full of strangers, yet I feel right at home. You know, uh, when a newcomer comes in and says they can't fall asleep without a drink and they're exhausted, I'm like, yeah, like I totally get that. Or when someone says, like the holidays are coming and I'm going to be around drunk coworkers and drunk family and drunk friends and it's going to be hard. And I'm like, I get that. But also the the jokes. You know, I laugh all the time at the jokes in AA and Bill, who is a comedian and a comedy writer, talks a lot about that if you're laughing at the jokes in AA, if you're la- laughing at like the sick and twisted things that sometimes get said, you're probably in the right place. So again, just as a quick reminder, if you like the podcast, It makes it much more discoverable to new listeners to leave a review on iTunes and a rating. And again, any questions, I can be reached at keepcomingbackpodcast at gmail.com. And, you know, this interview starts with uh, Bill responding to my question of basically, you know, what were the good times? You drank for 20 years. Uh, What were you looking for? And why did you stay out drinking for so long? I saw what it did for you. And I sought that, and I never got there. And I tried for 20 years. I thought I was unattractive. I drank. I became great looking. I was shy. I drank. I became outgoing. So I was outgoing. I drank. I became withdrawn. I didn't think I was attractive. I drank. I knew I was unattractive. So it was, it just, it did not work, and I saw what it did, and I just sought that. And as I say, I was in research and development for for 20 years. So if I think of the good times, 
they're incredibly few, incredibly few. And I was a guy that I I was a solitary drinker. I was a bar drinker. But if I, you know, you want to go out drinking, okay, I'll go out. Mm-hmm. But I was the guy. If you if I if I went out drinking with you, invariably, and this happened more than a few times. The next time you would see me, you would say to me, "Man, I never drank like that." And I would go, "What? What are you talking about? You know, I, that's because you were. That were you a blackout the, drinker? I again." Didn't know that till I came in the rooms. I would hear about blackouts, and I would go, well, thank God that didn't happen to me. And then people would be a little more specific about black. Ooh. So that, that happened a lot at the end. What oh. about, like, growing up? Like, did your family drink? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I said, talk about this. You know, my mother, my mother's still alive. My mother's 96. My mother, uh, I'd say this, my mother's like a bank. You had to get to her before 4 in the afternoon. And, she, <laughs> and, and, and um uh, my father drank a bit, but my mother was an alcoholic. My mother was a functioning alcoholic, but my mother didn't have to work. And so she could, she was uh, functioning. I'm the fifth of six kids. I'm from a large Jewish family. There was never enough guilt to go around. And I had my <laughs> sister, who's just a little older than me. She was a heroin addict for 20 some years. Wow. She got clean when she was 38, became a doctor, a tremendous success story on the outside. But she never had any support, so she still behaves like a junkie. And um, so she's just dry. She just she is so crispy dry. <laughs> okay. It just it, and and she does not speak to anybody in the family, and I don't speak to her. I wish that she was in my life, but my life is more humane without her in it. That that's the thing about being sober, is that's the word I associate. It's humane. My life is humane. And that's the thing. If you, if, you, if you get sober, if you stay sober long enough, you're going to get all the good people back in your life if you want them. And it just, uh, you learn what you can tolerate, what you need, and what you don't need. I have a friend who's got 30-some years. He said, I can't be with anybody that's not living in the solution. I just can't. I can't be in that business. I can't be in that business because, like a lot of alcoholics, I'm a caretaker. You know, I can't be in that business. And, um, you know, my feelings get hurt easily. So I can't be around that. And when I find myself, and it still happens, sort of uh, blindsided, it's, it's sort of stunning. It's like, wait a minute. Oh, right. I'm not supposed to be in this people, places, and things situation. So over the 20 years of drinking, yeah. did anyone tap you on the shoulder, family, friend, coworker, whatever, and say, listen, Bill, like we're noticing we think there's a problem. Maybe you should get some help. Maybe you should slow down. Yeah, it happened to me uh, uh, a couple times. Yeah, I mean, when, when certain guys that you think have the problem tell you, you know, you're, if you're like me, you're thinking, what the hell does he know? He's a drunk. Well, he the knows. key is for, for me, you always keep someone around that's a little worse than you. Now you're playing my song because that was one of my big moves. I always, always hung out with people that drank or partook more than I did. And there, thereby, they had the problem. I could not only feel sorry for them, but judge them right. and feel superior. And as is the nature of this disease, there's two people I think of in particular. Uh, uh, one died of this disease at 42, who was my best friend and my writing partner, died at 42. 
you don't die of natural cause at 42. He, he just, he drank himself to death and he wouldn't, and he had other physical things wrong with him. And the notion of what he had to do to get well was too much for him. So, you know, he closed his eyes one day and didn't wake up 42. The other person got sober and, and that was my wife who got sober two years before me. And by her, the power of her example and her generosity, I came in two years after her and my, my wife, who a lot of people know who she died, it'll be three years ago in um, December. And I'll just say this about uh, my wife. She's a comedian. We met when we were both comics and uh, we had her memorial service on a Wednesday in January at 10 a.m. in St. Peter's Church, and she was in show business, and there were 400 people there. It maybe 100 were from show business. The other 300 were from AA, because mm-hmm. she belonged to a lot of people, and she touched a lot of people and helped a lot of people, and that's the the, the great thing. So you met your wife in, in comedy? Yeah. And yeah. she got sober two years before you? Correct. And, and did, again, didn't she had shine the a light on you then? Little bit, little bit that, well, in the sense that I thought I had other addictions that I needed to address. Which were? I, I took care of, uh, uh, well, I had, a, I had a, a, a problem with tobacco. I had a problem. I was a degenerate gambler, and I, and I like to take pills. Mm. And, um, what kind of pills? I liked yeah. Valium. I liked that stuff. I liked uh, codeine yeah. a lot. Now, this is in the... You know, this is in the '80s. I mean, that's what was around. And uh, but I liked uh, those; those were the ones I liked uh, the most. And I liked uh, Xanax. I was one of those guys. When I came to your apartment, my first stop was your medicine cabinet, <laughs> and that was my first stop. I wasn't a total scumbag. I would leave just enough for you to make it back to the pharmacy. You know, I would see okay three a day, so I would leave three. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, so you could get back and refill. Right. So I was I was a thief with a heart. The best story about an amend that I ever heard. This is a guy. He's still around. He's got a lot of time. Might have forty years, and he tells a story. It's a it's a ninth step meeting, and he tells a story about his for, a former boss of his that he used to just rip off blindly, and he tells his sponsor, and the sponsor says. How much do you think you owe him? And the guy mm-hmm. says, 3500 Okay. And he says, okay, well, you've got to take him to lunch, give him a check for 3500 So he calls the guy. The guy meets him for lunch. He says, look, you know, I worked for you. It didn't go well, and I stole from you, and comes to about $3,500, so shoves the check across the table. The guy says to him, uh, listen, uh, I don't want your money. I just never want to see you again, and rips up the check and throws it at the guy. Mm-hmm. Now, the, now he's telling this at a meeting for about 200 people. It was called Step by Step. It was on Saturday. It was a big step meeting. It's like 200 people in the audience. So he says, so I go home, and I call my sponsor, and I say, well, I met him, and we had lunch, and I made my amend, and I gave him a check for 3500 and he ripped up the check and threw it in my face. And the sponsor says, and did you then ask him, what his favorite charity was, so you could give 35. Mm. And the whole room goes like this. Mm. Oh! <laughs> Gut so, punch. So tell me about, I always am curious about people's first meeting. You know, those first meetings, early impressions, what the hell am I walking into? What did you think? Okay, so that's easy, because my wife got sober. The change in her was instantaneous. 
I couldn't believe it. I can't remember. I, I, what I did remember. that look like? What do well, you mean? Well, uh, I'll tell you this. So she comes back from her first meeting, which was at the lunch bunch. She had been dry for nine months. She staggers up to the lunch bunch, and she comes back, and she walks in the apartment, and I looked at her, and I said, I got my little girl back I, after one meeting. And then so she's going, and it's happening, and I see the change in her, and and it's very – I can't help but be curious about it, and I stop drinking around her. If I'm going to drink, I'm going to do it off-site. Mm-hmm, right. I, I have a, a, a hiatus week from the show, and I say, I, I think I'll come to the 1230. So I go to 1230, the beginner's meeting. And it was – no, it was in the big room at City Corp where I still go in the morning. It's about 100, 150 people there. It was fascinating, and uh, I heard a guy, and the guy was – But, from, but I, I'm just curious. Like what was the thing that like that, – what was the tipping point? Uh, well, no, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what it was. I would go to – I would go to – I audited meetings for a couple years where every month or so I might go to me, and, and the thought uh, okay. was always the same. The thought was always the same. Wow, this is great. Man, these people are really getting a lot of help. <sighs> Isn't it just my luck that I'm not an alcoholic? Because I could really benefit from right. this if I was. But, you know, that's just my luck. It's nice that they that have But this. meanwhile, my head is going up and down at everything, yeah. and I relate. To, and I'm, and the, thing, the thing that really, the tipping point for me was that I got all the jokes. I laughed at mm. all the inappropriate places. And and when people say, I didn't come in on the third tradition. I didn't come in the first step. I came in because I got the jokes because I got that. And that first meeting, I heard a guy who's from Staten Island. He had like three years and he was, you know, rough guy from Staten Island. And he says, you I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Three years. I'm doing good. Uh, uh, in the last year, I've only threatened to kill my neighbor three fucking times. <laughs> And the whole room starts <laughs> laughing, and I'm laughing. You know, if a straight person is in the room, they hear that, they go to the phone, they call, like, well, this is a very dangerous person. Right, right. He's threatening to kill his neighbor. And then what happened was I, I did not believe I was an alcoholic. And I started taking care of my other, what I thought my other addictions were. So I stopped uh, using tobacco. Uh, I was uh, not a cigarette smoker, but I, I chewed tobacco and I smoked. And I was, I mean, I was a nonstop tobacco i mean you never saw me with that so i stopped that first mm-hmm. and then i stopped gambling and i was a degenerate gambler i mean i gambled every day i didn't drink every day but i gambled every sports day yeah okay everything you know here's a list i'm gonna give you a list of the things i didn't bet on in my life the dog trick that's the end of the list <laughs> i bet on everything else and uh, and i played cards and i you know so once I stopped with tobacco a year before I stopped drinking, I stopped gambling a month before I stopped drinking. But here's the thing that happened for me. Uh, my wife was about two years in. She gives me a book called The Artist's Way, which a lot of people will tell you about because you know, I just thought I was a failure as a writer or whatever. And she said, you know, this is like a recovery approach to creativity. And I start and I, she gives me the book in July of 1995. In August of 1995, I start doing the morning pages, which I still do 24 years later, every day. And I'm doing these pages and I'm writing what's on my mind and this and that. That's August of 1995. In October of 1995, I stopped gambling 
in November of 1995, I stopped drinking. And in December of 1995, I started working on my first book. I mean, it was just that, you know, fast. Now, my best friend had died in July of 1994, had died a year earlier. And that sort of awakened in me about I got nobody to sort of play off of. I have no real running buddy, you know, and my wife is sober and. Did you keep it a secret to like coworkers and where you, how did you feel about your anonymity? How did you feel about people seeing you walk into meetings? Did you hide <laughs> it from work? <laughs> well, I, had, I had about seven months or eight months and I, and I get to uh, the big room at City Corp at 1230, a little late. I'm sitting in the back and a guy sits next to me that used to book me as a comic downtown, down here. And, um, and uh, he sits next to me, sits next to me. So I look straight ahead. You know, I'm not going to, I'm just going to look straight ahead. Maybe he won't know that it's me. But he's there. He's sitting next <laughs> to me. Finally, in the middle of the meeting, he puts out his hand. He says, hi, you know, hi, Bill. And I say, hi, so-and-so. And the rest of the meeting, I'm giving myself shit. You know, boy, he's much more sober yeah, yeah, yeah. than you are. I think I, no, I had, I had five months. He's much more sober than you are. What's the matter with you? You got five months mm -hmm. and you can't say, what is it? What are you embarrassed about? So uh, after the meeting, I, uh, he says, uh, how long are you here for? I said, I got five, five months. How much, how long are you here for? He says, I got four days. Wow. So he was, much more okay with coming in and he's still sober why are we so ashamed in the beginning that we're trying to get help i mean i have no problem acting like an asshole drunk everywhere right that of i'm course. fine with right but you seeing I'm, me walk into a recovery room i'm right. mortified it was yeah i think it's just so it's what's exposed i think it's what's exposed and and now now uh uh uh, uh contrast that to 10 years later and i'm in the morning group at Citicorp, where I've been going for 20-some years, and, and a guy walks in before the meeting starts, walks right up to me and says, uh, hi, Billy, which means he's from my way past. Mm. And, and I go, hi. And he introduces himself, and it was a guy I went to school with who's a year behind me. And he said, uh, they told me I'd find you here. And I was so happy that somebody had said, Oh, you're so and so. So you should go to the because this guy's here. I was so I didn't think who's telling him I'm here. I love that. That was ten years later, and for me, it's a bit of a balancing act because I don't want it. The only thing I'm worried about now in terms of anonymity is I don't want it to be used against me in an ignorant, condescending way. But I have no control like over that. What? You know, just people taking shots at, you know, I don't want to have to get into a conversation with you where I have to defend AA or where I have to say, you know, it's, it's, it's happened. It's happened. I mean, I've had, I've had guys cause, um, I've had guys because I had a, a, a high profile job for a long time and, uh, I've had guys stand up you know, or say stuff at meetings and refer to me and refer to my boss. I've had that. And you just got to take it. You just got to take it. And that's, 
that's to me it's the it's not the anonymity out there that I struggle with it's the anonymity in the rooms and well, what is, is it unfair? I mean, listen, if you are a celebrity and you're in an anonymous program, you're not anonymous. And is that fair? Is that fair? It. I don't. It, I don't think fair is the right. It, I don't think fair or unfair is the right. But there's a. There was a great piece in the Grapevine, and I'm talking like I'm a guy that reads the Grapevine. But it's the only piece I think I've ever read in the okay. Grapevine, and, and, and about that, and they talked about how some big, uh, huge celebrity you know, is getting up and is walking out and somebody comes up to him and they, they know, but they can't. And they say, what, what do you, what do you do? And he says, I go to meetings. It's great, which is so great because they want, now my old sponsor who went to heaven, Kevin Talty, who sponsored a billion people. And I'll never forget being with him in a morning meeting and he's talking to me. And he says, excuse me, Bill, I got to go over and talk to that newcomer there. And it was a newcomer because to him, because it was just a guy he didn't recognize. But it was not only a guy that had more time than him, 35 years. It was a guy that, you know, had a statue on his mantle. Got it. At home. And uh, but I, I that's the other side of it that I love that he had no idea who that guy was. Right. He was just. um you know, just a guy that he hadn't met, so he might be a newcomer, so let me go over. So I think that is, look, as I've often said about AA, think about AA, think about an AA meeting. It's an hour, most times, it's an hour, and anybody can raise their hand and talk about whatever they want to talk about for as long as they want to talk about. The fact that that is not abused on an hourly basis... Well, sometimes it is. ...is, but... is, 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 is incredible. But, but, but here's the thing. It, it, the fact that it doesn't happen more is incredible. And, the, and when it does happen, that people feel unsafe is a great testimony to AA that what's happened in there, that here are these crazy, these egos and these, you know, wherever these people came and, and, and the people that lived in the non-behaving world right. of active alcoholism. And and here we are in the church basement or wherever they are, and somebody doesn't behave well. And we're horrified. <laughs> so think let me about, ask you think this. About that. There are things that are said in meetings that sometimes for whatever reason, because maybe we needed it at the time, just stick, right? They register. So when you look back after you've gone to a lot of meetings, what are the things, one or two things, that you've heard in meetings where you're like, oh my God, like, oh my God, that, that really hit me? This is this, I have a great story. I had about a year and a half, and I go to City Corp, but I'm late because I was running out. I, I had to like grab a half hour out of the show. So I run there, I get there late, so I can't sit with my wife. And I have about a year and a half. So I'm still kind of taking it in. And there's about a half hour left in the meeting, eh, listening, okay, fine, it's packed. Now there's a couple minutes, burning desires. Mm -hmm. Guy raises his hand mm -hmm. and he says, uh, I just want to say that I'm leaving and I've had it and fuck you and fuck AA and fuck the steps and fuck you people and it's a cult and fuck AA and fuck you and I've had it and I'm out of here and you're full of shit and fuck you and fuck AA and that's it. I'm done. I've had it. And thank you for letting me share. And everybody jumps up and applauds. <laughs> and they say the serenity prayer and I'm... Ashen. I mean, I'm white. <laughs> I, I'm stunned. And we finish, and I go over to my wife, and I say, did you, 
did you did you hear what that last guy said? And she said, oh, he's here every day. He says the same fucking thing. <laughs> and that's what that guy had to do to stay sober. So, um, well, I love um, my sick mind cannot heal my sick mind. I love that slogan. I lo- I, that's a great topic, I think. If you're at a topic meeting, if you don't know what topic to be, just ask people what their favorite slogan is. And you'll hear some new one. Uh, I, I, I like that. That was very galvanizing. What did that mean to you? Is that up here is madness. It's just madness. Even if you're and and the, the notion that we we're we're born in a box with the directions to life on the outside of the box, and the only one that can read us the directions is another alcoholic. You know that that thing. I like. Uh, here's one I've only heard a couple times, which is don't walk away with the rope they use to pull you out of the hole, which is. Don't walk away with a rope they used to. I don't even get it. Well, don't don't forget what people did for you to get you to that point. You got to give back. It is about service, and it is so. Don't you know what was done for you freely? Mm, right. Don't forget to to do that for other people. Mm. So that is, you know, I think that that's incredible. I mean, I, I there was a book um, that I read called. Um, what was it called? Three Little Words or whatever it was. It was a spiritual book. But the only thing I remember, I don't even remember what the three little words were, but there was a little thing in the back that said that uh, the best definition of humility is service plus faith. I just love that. Service plus faith. The other thing, the best definition I've ever heard of humility, humility is the ability to be inconvenienced. How about that? I mean, this stuff, and, and, and this is stuff I heard once. Maybe twice. I heard a guy quote presidential candidate Marianne Williamson saying that love brings out everything unlike itself that needs to be healed. So that was, uh, you know, when I think of all the gifts that I've received in sobriety, my capacity to love and be loved, exponential. I learned how to, to hug in AA, and I also learned how to say, I love you. And the other person knowing exactly what I meant by that. Because I was a guy, like a lot of guys, that are very unsure with women and very unsure with emotions. And if I told you I loved you, it was just pure need and desperation. It was everything but. And now, and nobody can misinterpret when I say that to them. They know exactly what it means. Right. So that, to me, and I didn't, you know, I didn't come up with that. You said you grew up in a Jewish family. Yeah. When you get to AA and the God, God is written all over the walls and doing your third step, tell me about your experience with that. We were, were pretty, uh, I used to do a line in my act. My parents believed in the Ten Commandments, but they believed you could pick five. And uh, <laughs> we had a very liberal rabbi, Rabbi O'Donnell. And uh, no, but uh, <laughs> I said, how come Jews aren't allowed to eat pork? We're not. No, but um, I believed in God. I, when, you know, when you come into the rooms and you see the steps and you start crossing off the ones you're not going to do. Yeah. Okay. I had no problem with the third step. And then, of course, I couldn't have been more wrong about my conception of God or my conception of prayer. And I prayed every night my whole life. Before AA. Before AA. And I, re- and I was doing it wrong. I mean, I was just asking or I, w- you know. So 
I, I it was great the way that changed, and I didn't change my relationship with um, with Judaism because you know to me that was always a religion, mm-hmm. and AA is about spirituality. Uh, look, do I would I rather they not do the Lord's prayer? Yes, I would rather they not do, but that was there at the beginning, and you have to respect that this is what it came out of. So when we join hands and we say the Lord's Prayer, I don't. I just listen, and it's no big deal. Now, I know other Jewish people that go crazy about that, (laughs) and it's just a waste of time. I knew about God. I believed in God. But I did not know the idea about asking for help. That that. Then what were you praying for before? Uh, you know, get this. You know, let me get a. You like, know, let so me get like two s- hits in the double header, right? Okay, okay. okay. Let the number seven come in in the eighth race, <laughs> right? You know, was that uh, the third step prayer? I say the third step prayer twice a day, and it's a rare day when I only say it twice. And you look. You can't spell spiritual without ritual. So I love these lifelines that I have. They don't solve everything. They don't look at you're talking to a guy. You know, my wife dies and, and, and she was sick a long time. We were together a long time. She uh, breathed her last breath at 545 in the morning on a Wednesday. By 615, there were three women from AA. In my apartment by 6.30, there were two more women in my sponsor, and I've been carried by AA since. And that's a big club is people that have lost people, sober or non-sober. That's a big club in AA. Mm-hmm. You know, you're mm-hmm. never alone. I mean, I talk about AA being a lot of different clubs. You know, people that are having trouble at their job that are sober, that's a big club. People that are having trouble with their spouse, that's a big club. People that are have trouble with their family of origin, that's a giant club. So... I've been carried ever since, and it's been great solace, but doesn't solve everything, doesn't replace anything. The notion of living in a, the solution is a nice thought, but to me, it's a much more humane way to live, and I am eligible to have a good day every day. I'm eligible, and when I was out there, I was eligible for nothing. So when you qualify now, and you've been sober a long time, yes. and you have a limited amount of time to say, and here's what it's like now, okay? Because we do what this right. is what happened, right. this is what it's like now. What do you say? Well, I, I, well, one of the things I say is that yes, it's a spiritual program, but the longer I'm sober, the more practical this program is, and so when I qualify, I try to be as practical as possible and give practical suggestions about, look, if you've got some time and you're miserable, it's probably one of two things. My experience is one of two things. Either you don't have a sponsor or you have a sponsor and you don't call the sponsor or you haven't done your fourth step because that the fourth step is the end of victimization. That's what it is. And that's why some people avoid doing it. They kind of like being the victim. That's sort of the last frontier. So I talk about that. I talk about sponsorship. That's why when I go through the steps with guys, I do that fourth and fifth step. I do it in pieces. 
you know, the notion of... Same. It's a lot. The notion of, what, nine hours it's, and two yes. vats of coffee, and it doesn't have to be like that. And the, the, you, you got to de-demonize it. So I do it... My, I was taught to do it the same way, and because otherwise you're just like... You're, you're on your 10th resentment, your 15th fear. You're just like, let's just get through this. And you start just glossing over stuff. And instead right. of doing that, let's take our time and do it over the, a few sessions or whatever it takes. Right, right. And the other thing, the other piece, so the way I do it is uh, we do the, the, the most difficult, the most challenging relationship in your life. That's, that's, the first, that's the first session. Then we do family. Then we do work history mm. because there's so much – in your work history, uh, when you're active, that bears fruit and so many resentments. And it's so, and, and it's also because they're people that you worked with. Um, for some reason, it's easier than the family, or it's, it's just less, and it, it's sort of easier to see the patterns. And then the sex inventory. I mean, I, I couldn't, I was a guy, I'll just say this about that. I was a guy before I did my sex inventory. I was sure, sure that I had never done anything to anybody that I had been, I'd been the guy that was walked on. I was the guy. And then all of a sudden you start right. Oh yeah, that. Yeah. Oh yeah, that. And, and, and then, you know, and don't forget to list all your good qualities and don't forget, you know, and you know, that's, and then you get your eighth step list off of that. It's so, it's so practical. And for, it took me so long, as I mentioned, uh, to get that, what my part in it was. I mean, a lot of people just get stuck on that, you know, okay, I know who, uh, I resent. I know what happened. I know how it made me feel, but what my part, what did I do? What, you know, what's it? I got punched in the face. What my part in it? Well, you probably shouldn't have been in the situation where you get punched in the face. Right. Probably had expectations of not being punched in the face. So that is so valuable. So I always talk about, you know, you want to know what your partner is? It's one of two things. You either try to dominate another person or you have unrealistic expectations. It's one of those two things. Sometimes it's both of them. It's a combination. So if you're struggling with that, that's what it is. But the thing about AA, and the other thing I talk about when I talk about sponsorship is I talk about the AA call. In the AA call, it's not three in the morning sobbing for 45 minutes. The real AA call, it's 30 seconds, it's at noon, yep. and it's because it's about the connection. And, and, and I was going through um, something a couple years ago, um, and uh, so I get a, a text from a really good friend of mine the program. And, uh, and she says to me, how you doing? And I said, uh, feeling a little fraudulent. And she writes back, fraudulent? And that was all I needed. And I gave her a very compelling argument as to why I'm a fraud. Mm -hmm. uh, I got no wife. I got no job. I write books that nobody reads. Uh, I, I got a band that I lose uh, uh, money on. And, you know, this, this, mm -hmm. all those, this is why I'm a fraud. This, 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 this. She gets my text. And writes me back 15 seconds later. What does she write? I get it. Not, not, no, no, no. Right. You're not a fraud. You're wonderful. You're this. You're that. Look at how you're handling this. You're brilliant. You're the, no, just, I get it. That's the thing. I it's was there Tuesday. That's right. what she's saying to me. Yeah. And that's the thing. That's the thing.
Right. Sometimes we don't want to necessarily get picked up. We want someone to say, I get it. Right. What year did you get? Uh, 1995. Okay. I was always obsessed with, I'm not a real writer. Well, yeah, I'm a sports, yeah, whatever that was. It's like I'm writing a, 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 a daily paper. I have a byline every day, but that doesn't count because all I'm doing is going to games and just writing debt. So that, that really doesn't count. And then uh, I come to New York and, and I get, you know, uh, I do some magazine pieces. Yeah, but that doesn't count because I'm just working in installments. And then, uh, you know, I write like a screenplay, but that doesn't count because it's only, you know, and I just kept. Making these, and then I get a job. I get, uh, before I got sober, I get this giant job that I had for 24 years on a big time television program. And I just thought, okay, uh, this is it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're now, this is it. You're a real writer now. And then I don't know, a year in, it's like, what am I doing? I'm sitting in a room, I'm writing jokes. Anybody can do it. It was always anybody can do that. I'm not a real writer. And then I finally, I, I, I write a novel and I sell it. Okay. This is right after I got sober. So but, but I, I, I drank, for, as I tell people when I qualify, sometimes, I drank for 20 years. I wrote no books. I, I've, ri- I, I've been sober for 24 years, and I've written nine books. Okay. And those are all, that's all the statistics that I need. So I write a book. I get it published. And, okay, I'm a real writer. And then the voice says, you know, anybody can write a novel. You know, right. a real writer So writes, what is that all about? To, I think that that is, I think that there's a great uh, expression that I heard that if alcohol is your problem, then abstinence is the answer. But if alcoholism is your problem, then AA is the answer. And the other line that I heard was, uh, your alcoholism begins the day of your last drink. That's when your alcoholism begins because it's all whatever that thing in you that drove you to drink – you know, just because you stop, that doesn't, the madness doesn't stop. And, and that's the, the value of AA, among many things, is the connection uh, between us. And, and that, that uh, as my late wife used to say, that shorthand. So two more and then I'll get you out of here. The first one was. How, is you, this, how is this going, by the way? This is good. Okay. <laughs> this is good. Um, when you talked about laughing at the jokes in the meeting. Yeah. When I notice that I'm the only one not laughing at the jokes, it's a sign that something's wrong with me. Cool. So how do you know in your life these days that something's going on with you where you're sort of, you know, not to be cliche, off the beam, unsober? What does it look like? Well, I've gotten hard of hearing. I had I was hard of hearing in one ear, but now I've gotten – so I miss a lot. So I just try to take my seat. The hearing is even worse when I'm off. Because I'm not, I'm really not hearing. And I think we have people in the rooms that are our barometers of, uh, of uh, serenity, you know. And when you're off the beam, it's like, fucking, this fucking asshole again. Yeah. Why don't you try going, why don't you try going to a meeting without you? Who are you, Cal Ripken? You got to share in 5,000 5, meetings in a row? Okay, so that's when right. you're off the totally, beat. Totally, totally. Then, then, then the other, the, so the other side of that is it's the same guy. And if you're, yeah, Bob sounds pretty good today. Yeah, you know the, yep. So the last question that I ask everyone is, if there was someone listening who's thinking about getting sober or someone who was just starting and you were going to give one piece of advice to that person, what would that one piece of advice be? Wow. I would say go to a morning meeting because for some reason I find the um, 
the serious, you know, the people that go to a morning meeting, they're a little more serious at the start of the day. It's a little less social, but you get the big laughs too. Mm. So I would I would say that because most of us in our drinking history were out too late. So the notion of being somewhere at 7.30 in the morning in the church basement, I would say try that. Okay. Because it's so different. You know, you know. look, you and I, we've dealt with a lot of people that have gone out and come back, and we always say the same thing. What are you going to do differently? Yep. What didn't you do? What do you, you know? And... Um, so that I, I that's that's I, I would say that go to a morning meeting. Okay. Well, thank you, man, for coming on. Oh, it was much great. appreciated. This was great. Thanks, Bill. Good for me. My thanks again to Bill S for coming on the podcast. Just a couple of quick reminders again: if you can leave a review, it makes the podcast more discoverable. Um, again, you can find me on Twitter at KCB Podcast, Instagram at KCB Podcast, and any questions you have for me can be reached at keep coming back podcast at gmail.com this has been another episode of keep coming back real stories of sobriety and recovery my name is mike s and i will see you next week